Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. Before we get started, I want to take a quick break. We'll hear from our sponsors to help make the show possible. If you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff, happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out guardianvets.com now. You've heard me talk about the opportunity in urgent care. So VetCheck believes in the power of your capacity to influence your patients, patient families, and be a leader in your community. How they do this is by giving you the freedom to take ownership of your future to make the biggest impact in your patients' lives. They equip you with a turnkey opportunity to take action on the dream through a unique pathway to owning your own VetCheck Pet Urgent Care Center franchise. They provide a solution to remove obstacles like competing against corporate dollars in the community that you want to be in and having access to a hospital ownership, medical directorship, and more. Also, you become a partner along the journey. A vet check pet urgent care center franchise is the answer. If you're interested, check out episode number 80, where I talked to Dr. Siva and he shares more about his story and the opportunity. So if this sounds like something that's interesting to you, reach out and learn how you can own your own vet check pet urgent care center franchise today by visiting vetcheckforpets.com, which again is vetcheckforpets.com. All right, tonight I have a special guest. So first and foremost, this is the winter storm apocalypse that's hitting Indiana. So didn't really have anything else to do, right? But I have a special guest that I actually know much better than any other guest. And it's actually my partner, Josh Bennett. So Josh and I merged it to create Vincere Wealth back in 2020. And actually, Josh founded Vincere as a solo RA back in 2018. And he also started Vincere Tax, which is a kind of sister-affiliated but separate business in 2020. And one of the cool things is, so Josh and I connected actually pre-pandemic in 2020. And we spent a ton of time together, obviously, and are now business partners on the Vincere Wealth side. And tonight, I really wanted to dive into and chat on tax stuff. And since it's the brink of tax season 2022, it made sense to answer some of those tax questions that a lot of you are probably starting to think about as you get these forms in the mail and you're like, okay, what the hell do I do now? So Josh, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. This will be fun just (laughs) because I mean, we have these conversations almost every day. <laughs> so I think this is the first time we really recorded them and with headphones on and all that fun stuff. So this could either be terribly boring for everybody and hearing us bicker like a married couple or, you know, it could be a lot of fun. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. And so we've kicked around the idea of doing a podcast just more for the Vincere side of things. So this will be a good test run. So we'll see. But exactly. Yeah, test drive. Yeah. Two quick notes. So first, Vincere Tax, wholly owned by Josh. I do not have a stake in the business. We're going to talk about why Obviously, taxes play a big role. We're going to focus more so on the 1099 and like relief stuff that a lot of you do. Second for listeners, this is the cool part. And this is the thing that makes Josh awesome. And I'm super excited for if you do want to work with Vincere Tax, you get a 35% discount as a listener of the show. So if you go and we'll have links, obviously, in the show notes, you put in vet success as the code. If you forget, just let me know and I'll make sure it happens. That'll let Josh know to apply that discount when you go and file. So just know if this is a good conversation, you think this is helpful certainly reach out to Josh and the team at Vincere Tax and they will take care of you. So with that, let's get started with different questions. And so I pulled a lot of the members on the Facebook group and I got a bunch of different questions coming back and this will kind of be all over the place. But when you think about a business and let's, again, we're going to focus on those doing relief work. So maybe not the 
brick and mortar practice, one of the simple questions is, do I need a separate bank account for income and expenses if I'm doing 1099 work? What do you typically yep. advise someone on on that? Yeah, that's a great question. And real quick before I dive into that, I'm just kind of piggyback from what off you said earlier. A lot of this stuff might be sort of it depends answers when we're talking in generalities and rules of thumb. So if you do have more specific questions, feel free to reach out to me directly. Happy to like dive into those type of answers. But along the lines of like whether you should have a separate bank account, separate credit card, et cetera, sort of depends if you're purely a 1099, it's and running as a sole proprietor. You don't necessarily have to have one. I would say it's very good practice to have one, if nothing else from a sanity perspective because <laughs> um, any of these things that you are doing as part of your business even if you're working as a sole proprietor for all means and purposes you are a business so any of those things that you're doing on behalf of the business could potentially be a tax deduction so the last thing you want to do is be sort of leaving money on the table that you could otherwise be paying less taxes could be getting that money back and really, I think that boils down to being super organized and an easy way to be super organized is just to have a sort of a separation of church and state. So even if you don't necessarily think of yourself as a business, you are and having that kind of quote unquote business bank account can go a long way to like keeping things mentally separated and being easier to track, easier to understand when you're trying to aggregate everything at the end of the year. Otherwise, I mean, I've made this mistake in the past, too. And so part of this is learning from hard-won lessons. But even things like mileage, if you're driving and doing things for work that's not just commuting to an office, for example, well, that mileage can be deductible. But if you forget to track it in real time, going back at the end of the year and trying to remember every single trip you took and using Google Maps and stuff to track those can be quite a pain. <laughs> so the more proactive and organized you are, just the better it is for your sanity. From a legal standpoint, don't necessarily need to because you're not a limited liability company. There's not really a separation of liability from you and the business if you're doing that. But from like an aesthetic, from a organizational standpoint, highly, highly recommend it. Yeah, I was going to ask on the mileage because someone asked about that, but I think that's a good answer there is just it's going to be really hard to track that if you're going from clinic to clinic and all over, you're not going to remember, oh, yeah, this week I did that and that it's going to be a mess and a nightmare. But you mentioned something on sole proprietor and then you talked about like a limited liability company or LLC. When would it make sense or when should you start to think of saying, hmm, maybe I need to have an LLC instead of a sole proprietor? Is there good rule of thumb? Is there a time to do it? Is it a dollar amount? What do you typically think about there? Yeah, from like a pure LLC, there's not really a time that makes much of a difference. That's purely from a legal perspective. Like if you feel like you're in a high risk of being sued, yeah, it could be a good opportunity to get some separation from you as a business and you as an individual, because the more separation you have between you as a business and you as an individual, that gives you just protection from your other assets. But that being said, from a tax perspective, an LLC as an individual or sole proprietor doesn't really give you any tax benefits. And that's a pretty common misconception that people hear LLC and they're like, oh, I get all these extra tax write-offs. Well, in reality, you don't. Everything you can do as an LLC, you can do as an individual. And the main reason why is from a tax perspective, the IRS looks at a single member LLC as what's called a disregarded entity, aka they basically remove the LLC and make it just you. So either way, it's just you. If you have partners, that changes things. But one of the things you can do with an LLC is create what's called an S-corporation. So if you're running multiple contracts, say it's not all with one employer, or even if it is, you can basically set up your own 1099 business 
and eventually turn that into an LLC, then turn it into what's called you know, filing a subchapter S application. Well, if you file, become an S corp, basically what it allows you to do is save money on what are called self-employment taxes. You essentially pay yourself a salary, which kind of seems weird, even though because you're kind of getting a salary as a contractor, but you're basically taking that salary then splitting it up into your own wage plus a business profit, if you will. And then that allows you to save some self-employment taxes on the quote unquote business profit. That may make sense if you're making north of forty or $50,000. It does come with complexities just because there's a lot of nuance and rules around what is a reasonable salary? How do you maintain that reasonable salary? How do you track it, prove it, et cetera? But as a rule of thumb, kind of forty, fifty thousand 50000 salary or higher, it's definitely something worth exploring. Whether it's doable or not, that's a more specific question, but that's going to be the biggest delineation between any sort of corporate structure as a 1099 versus just doing it as a sole proprietor. Doing an LLC by itself, taxes gives you nothing, does give you legal protections, which I think are worth a lot, especially if you're in a litigious field, but from a tax perspective, minimal. And I think the LLC, just going through and thinking about malpractice, going for medical boards, like who knows, like there are pet parents and people out there that are, are crazy. I'm actually going to have a guest later on that sat on boards to kind of walk through cases that have been presented, not to scare the heck out of people, but just to kind of go through that. For most, it really is something that is either ridiculous that shouldn't even be there, or there maybe was some misconduct or some things that just were negligent. And so that'll be part of a conversation coming soon. So look out for that one. But one thing that you talked a little bit about too, is like just tracking expenses. The reason of having the business account or credit card makes sense. One of the questions that was asked is thinking about like a bookkeeping, but also like just keeping track of expenses, depending again, I'm sure it's going to be, well, it depends on how complex and different things like that. But do you have ideas of like when it would start to make sense or any tools to help track, whether it's mileage or other things that could be useful for someone that would be going different places, getting paid from different people? Yeah. Yeah. No, great question. So there are a lot of tools out there, especially these days. The ones I can tend to, especially as like a, if you're kind of a, a 1099 sole proprietor, if you're full vet practice, that's going to, this answer is going to vary drastically because then you're going to be more into traditional accounting. If you're more of the sole practitioner and want to keep track of expenses, no, you're less worried about having to do balance sheets and some of the more intricate bookkeeping, if you will. That's where like a tool like QuickBooks Self-Employed is typically going to be really useful. FreshBooks is another one. Essentially, they're sort of designed for you know, freelancers, independent contractors, that sort of thing where it auto pulls in. And this again, where kind of if you have the separate business account, it can auto pull in all your transactions from your business credit card. You basically just have to, if you happen to have any personal, you just weed those ones out. But otherwise, like QuickBooks Self-Employed, for example, tells you, here's exactly how much you've spent. Here's how much money you've made. It gives you quarterly estimated tax payments that you could probably owe as well as it does have like a mileage tracker in its app, which I think is really cool. So basically what you do is like when you have the app open, you can essentially press go and it starts doing the GPS tracking. So if you're getting in your car, yes, obviously it's a force of habit. You have to remember to do this. But if you do remember to do this, it can be super valuable where if you're getting in your car, you know, put your phone in its little holster and pull up QuickBooks, press go, and then drive to wherever you're going, then press stop. I mean, it can actually just record automatically anytime you get it in the car. I don't know exactly how it does. I'm sure there's some algorithm like, you know, you're obviously not walking 30 miles an hour, but 
there are the ability to do it automated, but then it gets messy trying to filter out what was personal, what was business. So if you just kind of get in the habit of, if you know you're going to on a business trip, press and go and letting that calculate, all those things can, can be done in that one app. FreshBooks has a lot of those same features as well. So those are kind of the two tools I like the most. Both are very inexpensive, like to the tune of five to 15 bucks per month. So kind of our Netflix subscription, you keep your life organized, save yourself a lot of headaches. So I don't think there's really any time too soon to start that. The other alternative would be just Google Sheets, Excel. Those have a lot of really good templates for a more simple bookkeeping process where you can just essentially have light items of being like, what was the expense? What was the date? How much did I spend, et cetera? So you can just get away with something as simple as that. It's much more manual, relies on friction for you to do it. I tend to lean more towards, hey, pay the 10 bucks, get it automated so you don't have to think about it. The less friction you can have to being organized and efficient with your taxes, you're probably going to end up saving a lot more money than if you were trying to do it manual and forgot deductions and things like that. So I think having a tool like QuickBooks or FreshBooks is definitely the way to go, no matter what stage you're at. If you're more of a vet practice, if you're more than $5,000 in transactions per month, I definitely think it makes sense to hire a bookkeeper or an accountant, depending on the level. But basically what a bookkeeper or accountant is going to do is, one, they're going to do a lot of that organization for you. They're also going to be looking for other deductions. But if nothing else, they're going to save you a lot of time. And when you have those sort of situations, really becomes an equation of like, my time is worth $200, $300 an hour. Well, hire a bookkeeper for you know $20 an hour. Why am I doing $20 an hour tasks when my time's worth more than that? So that's typically my urge is less not necessarily saying that you can't do it yourself. You can't find these deductions, et cetera. Vets are smart people. <laughs> you absolutely can. Whether it's worth your time or not, that's the different equation. So as a solopreneur, definitely use the automated tools. If you get graduate beyond that to something more complex, that's when it makes sense to sort of hire help. Yep. I think the idea of what's an hour of your time. So if you're doing relief or even if you're a practice owner, you kind of know like, hey, this is what an hour of time costs. This is what I'm billing. It's what my rate is and significantly higher than a lot of those costs. So yeah, just think about how to make life efficient and get time back. One really good question that is probably a good jumping off point is what are some things people don't think about that are great write-offs as an expense? And then I'm going to kind of lump in a couple that we can kind of bounce around to. So one was like the home office deduction, or if you're working from home, Another one was talking about like retirement contributions, or if they ask about savings accounts, I'm guessing probably some sort of investment account of some sort within the business itself. And then just anything else outside of that. Any thoughts on this? Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, to that point, the structure of the business makes can end up having a lot of tax benefits itself, whether it's, like, for example, if it's a C-Corp, it gives you the opportunity to get the corporate tax rate, which is much lower than individuals. However, you kind of got to keep the money in the business. Like if you start paying yourself a salary, you get dinged twice. So there's pros and cons that S Corp, we kind of already went through. So there's different like tax structures kind of amongst just choosing what kind of entity structure you are as a first and foremost. Beyond that, yeah, there's different retirement accounts that are created for business owners. Some of the things I really like looking into that I think a lot of people leave on the table is more of what I would classify as like or the IRS would classify as like fringe type benefits. So some of them were like, for example, having a gym membership under your business name is something that's entirely doable. It's basically a fringe benefit to employees. Same with, it's actually possible to get things like massages 
under your business name. Typically, you would want some sort of doctor recommendation for stress management or something like that, just as to help give that stamp of approval there. But things like that are entirely doable within your business. Things like therapies, like if you need a therapist to talk to, obviously, being a veterinarian is a stressful job in a lot of ways. You deal with some pretty big emotions. And so I think there's probably a need for a lot of therapy sessions in there. And those are things that can be tax deductible that a lot of people are probably paying out of the pocket that they shouldn't be. Other things, if you're, say you have employees or other contractors you work with or spouses that help you out or whatever the case may be there, other things that are tax deductions could be actually like renting out your house for business purposes. So for example, things like speaking with me and Isaiah here, like some of the things we could do is like, say we had our team over to one of our houses. Well, if you buy food for that, that food is a tax deduction. You also can even go look on Airbnb and see what it is in your neighborhood to rent out a house for a day. And actually, since you're basically renting out your house for business purposes by having people over, well, hey, the IRS actually allows you to do that for up to 14 days a year. So you could basically rent to yourself 14 days a year. And that could really add up depending on what you're using it for and kind of what the property is too. So, I mean, that's usually a couple thousand dollars in tax deductions people leave on the table because they'll have friends and family over talking about business, et cetera, and they just kind of forget. But yeah, those are some of the biggest ones, like the different fringe benefits. My obviously a big one. I'd say people don't necessarily forget that. They just tend to not use it because of not being organized and then just don't want to go back to track it. Those are kind of some of the ones that are off the top of my head that... I mean, you can get much more, much more in depth. The beautiful thing about the IRS tax codes is there are actually a bunch of pages written to on how to save taxes, not necessarily how taxes should be filed. They're more on like, it's about 70,000 pages, which probably 50,000 are, here are ways that business owners can save on taxes. So there's really not much limit to the things you can do. Actually, as I'm sort of rambling here, another big one that just came to my mind is if you have a large amount of income and need to buy a vehicle for business purposes, like to so say you're doing a, just a ton of driving for work from different locations. Well, what the IRS code allows is if your vehicle is over 6,000 pounds, you can actually deduct the entire cost of that vehicle essentially in one year through like what's called like bonus depreciation. That's one of those rules that's probably going away after 2022. But if it's a, and there's some, again, some nuance to this and being able to make it work, but you can get some pretty massive discounts on personal vehicles if you're willing to buy, like, say, an SUV. Like, so that's another strategy a lot of business owners that do a lot of driving do. The caveat is it has to be a business purchase. Can't be like your name and then you try to write it off. But yeah, so long story short, there's a lot of ways you can get creative with tax deductions. Those are some of my ones that people often miss just because you just, you don't know what you don't know. On the therapy one, that's really interesting. It made me think because I've had a lot of people on the podcast that have done coaching that are like certified coaches. And this might be a question that it would be like, well, you need to dig into and understand. But is there a difference between like the coaching piece or therapy? Because I would imagine you could run both through similar to like some sort of consulting arrangement or something like that as well, right? If it was a coach, does that make sense? I think as long as the coach is like applicable to business, I would say 99% sure that it can be written off as a business expense. Or if nothing else, I think it is clearly defensible that if you're showing like, hey, 
this is value I get for this coach or this co- life coach that applies to my business. It is therefore a business expense. You know, the IRS is typically pretty generous despite common beliefs. They're pretty generous with, especially for the average small. As long as you're trying to do things right, you're backing things, you know, defensible statements. They're usually, again, willing to work with you. I think in a situation like that where there's clearly a business benefit, yeah, they'll help you. And that's one of the caveats with the massages and the gym and some of the things I was mentioning earlier is that it helps basically keep the business owner in or the employee in mental shape and physical shape to provide for the business. And so therefore, it is kind of like a business investment, no different than like buying a printer. That's at least how it's kind of viewed from like the IRS code is, does it go to benefit the business? If so, there's a strong possibility that we can write it off in some way, shape or form. Home office deduction. I know that I threw like five questions earlier. When do you consider it? How do you think about that on the home office deduction? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So the biggest key with the home office deduction is that it has to be a dedicated workspace. So like something like a kitchen table and something like that would not apply. Can get pretty nuanced if you're like in a, an apartment that is like a studio and there's really no difference between the desk and the bed and blah, blah. But the key IRS takeaway is that it has to be a dedicated workspace. And then from there, you basically calculate the square footage of that dedicated workspace. And then that applies to the sort of full suite of home office deductions. So what your home dedicated home office workspace is can be very loose. Like I've actually seen arguments, some of which have been turned down, some of which I've seen for even like, and this is something I'm working with a client on today actually is like through COVID, they basically have been doing the nomad living from a van, traveling to the US situation, but he also runs his business from there. He's set up his little dedicated workspace within the van even to make sure we can classify that as like a dedicated workspace. It's a very loose argument, but it's one of those things like even things like that have been, you know, past the IRS. Again, some like some things have gotten denied, but really what it boils down to, is this a dedicated space? If so, then I can write it off. And how that would work is like let's say just using round numbers, you have a five hundred square foot apartment. Your office makes up 100 square feet. Well, let's say your mortgage is a rent in this case would be $1,000. Well, if 20% of your place is dedicated to your office, well, now you have a $200 per month write-off. Then let's say for something like the internet, similar kind of calculation doesn't necessarily go off the space, but what it does go off and the space goes off for like utilities, the things that are fixed to the location, things like internet are going to go off time. So let's say you're awake for 16 hours a day, 10 of those hours you're working. Well, if, if you're, whatever your internet bill is, then basically 10 sixteenths now is a write-off. So that's kind of how it works. It's like, it's all proportions of like, what of these expenses is a quote unquote used for business. And it can, can be very loose. It can be your cell phone, your internet, you know, utilities, anything that basically applies. Like if you would have to get it for an office, you have those things at your house then it just is extrapolating them out to make sure those things are factored in. Got it. If you own a business or clinic and it's an LLC and have a separate 1099 outside of it for side jobs, should you have your 1099 role paid to your LLC instead of you personally? Let's say I have a specific brick and mortar veterinary practice and then I'm open three days a week, but then I'm working one day a week somewhere else and I'm paid as a 1099. I think let's just use that as the example. 
So three days a week, LLC, that's my main business. But I'm trying to side hustle this 1099 income outside of it to add additional income. And so with that 1099, when that other, let's say that other clinic is paying me as a 1099, should that be paid into the LLC or should that come through personally just to the kind of like a sole proprietor? Got it. Yeah. So the answer is it depends. There are a couple of reasons for that. So one of the reasons is basically kind of like I was mentioning in that question earlier before from the business entity side of things for an LLC or sole proprietor, the IRS doesn't care. It's all money coming to you, same money coming through the door. There's no delineation. So like for mileage, things like that, they'll look at the mileage the same. You still get the same amount of discounts, et cetera. That being said, if you're an S corp or something like that, yeah, it might make more sense to flow the money through your S corporation so you can save on self-employment taxes. So there are some benefits to doing it through the LLC and you 100% can because it's all very similar work. If it was a, like a side hustle that just has nothing to do with the debt space, then it might make sense to have a separate LLC again from like a you know, separation organization standpoint, having different credit cards, different separation of church and state situation. But if it's all similar work, there's really no reason that you have to do it separately. I would say from a legal perspective, it probably makes sense to have everything flow. And again, again, I'm not an attorney, but it makes sense to have everything protected if you're in a litigious space. Taking stuff in your personal name just then gets you open to liability, where if you already have liability protection on one half the coin, why expose yourself to another? But from tax benefits, it really makes no difference. It would just be like you could set up a separate LLC for just your freelancing if you wanted to. So when you think about retirement plans for someone that has a lot of 1099 work, is there any specific way to save? Think about retirement plans that you like, suggest? I know it depends, but just what are some of the favorite ways to save for someone in that role? Yeah. So, I mean, for freelancers, the typical go-to is going to be a SEP IRA. It generally gives you the most amount that you can sock away. doesn't necessarily have the best tax benefits of all of them. A Roth IRA or something of that nature is going to be, in my opinion, kind of the best option. For anyone that has high income earning potential and is especially if they're young, they're going to literally save tens, if not hundreds, if not millions of dollars of taxes over the course of their career by utilizing Roth versus traditional. And I mean, just where we are from a macroeconomic environment, I think the chances of tax rates staying the same throughout a career are pretty slim to none. So anything that you can get in Roth would be ideal. So from like a prioritization standpoint, even if it's not directly through your business, I think everyone should basically a Roth IRA. Or if they have the option, one way, shape, or form, a Roth 401k, but most freelancers don't really have that option. So the secondary would be doing a SEP IRA is equally, it's not equally, but it's still a great option and still a really good way to sock away a lot of money for the future and have at least tax deferred. Tax deferred is still better than paying taxes on it. I just like Roth because the less you pay over the full length, the better. If you end up doing an S-corp, it opens up more retirement options, such as like an individual 401k, which allows you to basically contribute both from the business, but also from you personally, and can give you just basically even more bang for your buck. Some institutions even allow you to set up individual 401ks that are Roth components. So you can set up your own Roth account and stuff through that. So you get a little bit more options when you either set yourself up as an S-corp or as a C-corp if you wanted to. 
but those are kind of, that's kind of the hierarchy. You start with kind of your, what the IRS gives you as like an individual, which is the individual IRA uh, or individual retirement account, Roth or traditional. Then you progress up to the SEP and then you progress to the individual 401ks and you can even get really powerful depending on if you're, let's say you're just making bank, you're late in your career. Well, even setting up like your own pension is something that's entirely possible. And this can be a really great tax saving strategies, especially for those that are later in their career. Because basically what you can do is you can set up a pension. And if it's a, what's called a defined benefit plan, you have to fund it a certain amount each year to meet those future benefits. And if you're older, you just have less mathematical time to meet those benefit gaps. So the IRS allows you to contribute a lot of money to catch up. Like to the, I forget the exact number, but it's like 250000 or something. So you could be in a situation where literally you could contribute to an IRA, contribute to an individual 401k, and then fund a pension on top of that. And if you want to add another layer of tax components, I don't necessarily advise this all the time, but you can even sock away things into like permanent life insurance policies that if you really just want tax savings, they tend to be expensive. So it's usually why it's not a first option or first line of defense. But if you purely just want to sock away money for the future, like you don't need it today, you don't necessarily want stock market exposure, or you have enough through your other retirement accounts, you just want something a little differentiated. Well, even life insurance can be a really powerful tool to save on taxes long term. So there's lots of options. They definitely progress depending on what stage you are in your career and, and also how much income you're bringing in the door. What's a K-1? K-1 is basically a form that designates a share in a partnership of some nature. It could be any type of partnership out there, whether it's a real estate, it could be a business, et cetera. It could be oil partnership, you name it. But essentially, that's basically just saying, I'm a partner in this. This is my tax implications from this partnership. Did I lose equity? Did I gain profit, et cetera? Got it. Another, this is a really good specific question, but if I'm a 1099, what do I have to think about from like Social Security and Medicaid? Is there any implication because I'm not a W-2? Do I still get those benefits? Yeah, great question. So it's a little different for self-employed as typically those are taxes that are paid through payroll. But that being said, the IRS is always good about collecting their money. And that's where we have self-employment taxes are essentially the contractor's alternative to payroll taxes. So self-employment taxes go to help make sure you fund things like Social Security and things like that. So as long as you're paying taxes and paying self-employment taxes and things like that, those all should be counted towards your Social Security years, basically, because you're still funding the system. It's just classified a little bit differently. That being said, that's where it gets interesting with the S-Corp is that basically allows you to fully just lock it into your wages instead of your self-employment because the self-employment can be theoretically unlimited, if I remember correctly, off the top of my head. But the payroll taxes are capped through just what's in that W-2 wage. And so that's where the difference can be powerful. But yeah, long story short, any of those Social Security, Medicare, as long as you're still contributing to the system through your pay sub, aka through paying taxes, then you should be all set for Medicare and Social Security, assuming we have it in the future. Yep. And that's a whole rabbit hole. We don't necessarily need to go down. I'll use the <laughs> joke that I use, which is if you look at the definition of a Ponzi scheme, that is exactly what Social Security is, truly, truly is. So, hey, give younger people at the bottom to fund it for the people at the top and you work your way up. It's kind of what it is. But anyways, one quick note on social security. Like if you're a young, something just kind of a life advice, if nothing else, I always go under the assumption. I tell all my clients this, and I'm sure you do, Isaiah, like if you're under the age of 40, 
you want to pretty much just assume you're going to pay social security taxes, but you're never going to get the benefits. I would be shocked if they're still in existence by the time myself included reach retirement. So I think it's just something that the onus is going to be on you as an individual. So it's just one of those things, the more things you can do today to prepare, there's just the less cut off guard you'll be when that inevitably does happen. Totally. I'm going to end. I don't know how this didn't get brought up with questions, but it's one that I want to definitely talk through is quarterly taxes because people that don't pay it learn that lesson and they learn it once typically when they get a huge giant bill that, hey, you didn't pay on this stuff. But can you kind of unpack quarterly taxes and then answer the question I've heard lots of times, like, what if I just don't pay, but I just hold the money back, but I just want to keep it? Because I've heard that like so many different times. We're like, yeah, I don't think that's a good strategy. So talk a little about quarterly taxes, how you calculate them, how to think about them, and how to kind of keep yourself out of a really painful spot of maybe you owe like 40K or something all of a sudden. And people are like, oh, shit. Yeah. So there's a couple different ways to calculate them. One, if you use like a system like QuickBooks Self-Employed, which I was mentioning earlier, they'll do a lot of those calculations for you. But that being said, I mean, even if you have to get as detailed as going online, there's a like on the exact form, I think it's the SS4 that you can just literally go fill out and they'll tell you exactly how much you owe based on your projected income. So it's a pain to do, but it's one of those things you have to kind of do the calculations once a quarter, see where you're on track or not. Obviously, wages come and fluctuate. The key is just sort of making sure that you're at least close on a quarterly basis. What you can use is like a benchmark. And for some solopreneurs, this might make a lot of sense. Would just be paying the estimated taxes when you file taxes because it'll allow you to pay fully in advance up front. You can do that. I'm not necessarily a huge fan of giving somebody an interest-free loan, but you can do that as just to prevent some complexity. Another option is there is what's called like safe harbor rules within the for taxes where basically as long as you meet a threshold, which is based on how much taxes you paid last year. So it's essentially like, have you paid 90% of last year's taxes or higher? Essentially, there's a couple different calculations depending on how much money you're expected to earn. But essentially, if you're making anywhere from 90 to 110% of taxes you paid last year, you could be over the safe harbor threshold. As long as you're basically dividing that number by four, you could also just make that as your quarterly payment just to get you over the safe harbor. Then the math becomes much easier. Like, so say you paid 50,000 in taxes last year and your safe harbor is 100% of that. Well, then just pay, divide that, what is it, 12,500 per quarter. So that's one option. The other is there, yeah, there's W4 calculators online where you can essentially use that as a calculator to, it's more designed for employees, but that can at least give you an idea for how much they would be withholding if you are like a salary. So it just can help you just get a good idea of what a typical withholding would be. From a penalty standpoint, yeah, if you don't pay, you can definitely get penalized. And it's based on essentially the number of days, what the amount was, the number of days that you didn't pay. And I've actually heard accountants and stuff say this, whether I believe it or not, I could argue kind of both ways, but some accountants will actually advise just not to pay quarterly taxes because your money could be better spent elsewhere and the fees aren't that bad. That's a decision for kind of you as a an individual. I tend to take the approach of trying to be as compliant as possible, at least when it comes to payments. And the reason for that is there are a lot of opportunities to write off other ways, like we were discussing, and save money on taxes other ways. And the last thing you want to do is be more aggressive on a deduction standpoint, have a history of not paying your quarterly taxes, 
get on the IRS's radar as someone that doesn't pay their quarterly taxes. And the next thing you know, you're audited and they're taking away all your deductions because they decided to disagree with you just for because they were annoyed by the fact that you, <laughs> you didn't pay your quarterly taxes. Not saying something like that would happen, but in my opinion, I think that not paying definitely puts you on an IRS radar. I don't have any proof for that, but I don't see why it would show up well in their system. Yeah, it could mathematically make sense to not pay. Yeah, and I could argue that if you're investing in stuff well on the other side, yeah, you'll probably make more money by not paying, but at what cost? That's kind of my worry. It's just you never want to be on Uncle Sam's bad side. There's other ways to get deductions to save money. To me, just actively going about not paying is not the strategy. Being accurate on how you're doing that, that's a harder question. But I will say in my experience with dealing with the IRS, they're pretty forgiving. Like if you miss a quarterly payment or forget to pay quarterly payments, et cetera, as long as you make the effort to actually do it. If you don't, they're not so forgiving. But yeah, I hope that was kind of a lot tied in there. But long story short, there's several different ways to calculate it, some easier than others. But I definitely recommend paying and trying to pay on close to time as possible. And if you're off by a hundred bucks, thousand bucks, not going to make a huge difference. If you're off by you know 20,000, you got problems. <laughs> yep. Yeah. No, I think that, again, topic's not always the most exciting to think about, but it certainly is one that I know a lot of people when they do move from, hey, I'm a W-2 and now all of a sudden I am doing relief work or I'm doing something different. It can bite them and you just try to not learn that lesson from having it happen, but you want to hear from someone else or get good advice on that. So kind of as we wrap up, this is like the part where I usually ask guests to ask me a question, which is as dangerous since we both know each other pretty well. And I did tell you at the beginning before we hit record that I was going to ask this. So you've had some time to think about it. What's a question you want to get into? And it can be anything. There's nothing that's off topic. So even if you wanted to ask the one that you joked about earlier, we can take it any way that you want. What's your most embarrassing story from college? Most embarrassing story from college. So I lived at home and went to community college and then transferred and got my degree at IU at a satellite campus. So I basically worked and put myself through school that way. But I went to Purdue a lot because that's where my friends were. And my mom at the time taught at the high school, but she was in the elementary in Southern Wells where I went to school was tiny. So like seventh through senior, we're all together. So it's not like Carmel High School where you went where it's massive, right? So I graduated with like 64 people. So everyone knows everyone and everyone talks about all the stuff. So my mom was in the elementary, which is still attached to the high school, by the way. So like the whole school system is like all attached. And a couple of the guys I hung out with that lived with some of my good friends went to a, a local high school. But so we went out, drank, partied, all that stuff. And I don't know if I'm 21 or not. Let's say I am just for all intents and purposes. I got. Well, s- yes. Yes. You're air quotes. Yeah, definitely yeah. 21. Anyways, we got back to the house and I got like super sick. So it used to be whenever I would go out and drink, I would like always be the one that would get sick. So I got super sick and like puked all over their yard. It was like on all fours doing that. And I just remember my mom hearing this story because the younger brother of the two that they told their mom and their mom thought it was funny. So they tell my mom, my mom does not think that's funny. So I heard about it from her like a week later, like, oh, I heard you had fun at Purdue. And then I was like, what do you mean? And she just told me about everything that happened. I'm like, okay, there we go. So, and I was kind of pissed because I'm like, who tells their mom this stuff? But I don't know. That's not the relationship I have with my mom, but it certainly was one that was kind of embarrassing or interesting. Yeah. There's just so many different stories, but luckily I'm not involved in a lot of them. They're just funny stories from other friends, but that was one that's top of mind. 
that was much tamer than I was hoping for, but you know, I, I really don't have that many bad stories. I promise. Like, I would give you a legitimate answer. I appreciate the people that listen to the podcast. I wouldn't lie to you, but that's the one yeah. that stuck out and I thought of right away. So, yeah, it's really not. I was hoping for something juicier, but well, yeah, we'll yeah. I, I was gonna say there's really not that much of a juicy story. I didn't stay on campus, so I just didn't get just didn't get in trouble as much. I needed some blackmail, but you know, yeah, we'll we'll, yeah. we'll work to find other blackmail. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> Again, I want to encourage everyone, if you have questions, reach out to Josh. I think you can kind of tell there's a wealth of knowledge there. So it's vinciertax.com. Josh at vinciertax, that's the right email. What else would be something that is important to know as far as getting connected? Obviously, you're on LinkedIn if people want to reach out there and ping you with a question. Yeah. So, I mean, either email is fine, like Josh at vinciertwealth or Josh at vinciertax. I answer both regularly. LinkedIn is great. If you're trying to get me on pretty much any other social media the chances of me actually noticing it are pretty much slim to none. I tend to not be much of a social media guy. I know Isaiah's big on Twitter. He's our influencer in Vincere. I definitely am not that guy. <laughs> so I'm very old-fashioned. Phone calls work, email works, carrier pigeons, anything like that. Perfect. You heard it here first. Send your pigeons uh, this way with tax <laughs> questions. Remember, if you do want to sign up, use the code VETSUCCESS, get a discount, make sure you pay your quarterly taxes, get stuff done be compliant. Josh, thanks so much for joining. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It's fun to do. We'll definitely have to do this more often. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should consult your team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is a partner of Vincere Wealth Management. Isaiah is registered in the state of Indiana, California, Texas. The biggest compliment you can give to this podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is the platform that predominantly is how people listen to the show. If you have three to five minutes, you like the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review that'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can subscribe via your favorite podcast platform platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information, insights, and have the ability for your voice to be heard and interact with show guests, join the private Facebook group. You can go to the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom where it says about your host and then click on the Facebook icon. That'll bring you into the Facebook group. I'll approve you. You'll be in. And then I'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and anything that you'd like to see added to the show. So with all that, thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking again to you soon.